Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. We're doing a very special episode today. We're here with, of course, my buddy Eris Pina, who is a CompuBox operator, fellow fight history file like myself, but we have a really special guest in BoxRec. What are you? BoxRec employee, BoxRec guru, Mark Gastonow, deep dive expert, Gray Johnson. What's up, man? How are you, man? Hey, thanks for having me, man. This is a, a topic I'm very uh, excited to talk about and want to have done way too much research. So I'm, 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 thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Pretty excited to have you on here. This was a perfect topic to wanted to bring you on. So let's get into it. Let's go. <laughs> it's like the perfect meeting of the minds. Cause like we're all sick bastards. We all enjoy this kind of, you know, salacious tales of crazy stuff in boxing. So we're talking about Rick Elvis Parker today. That name's probably not going to ring a, a bells for a lot of people. Like, there's going to be a small core group of people who know and are going to be like, oh, yes. There's going to be a lot of people who don't know who the hell this guy was. So, I mean, it's the Mark Gastonow story definitely interweaves with Rick Parker's story. Eris, I mean, this is one thing that you've been, like, interested in and been telling me about for a while, too. So, we've kind of been, like, putting this this show off for a while, but it's yeah. here. It's one of those, Rick Parker is one of those guys that I originally read about this as a kid in one of those magazines. I didn't really know who he was or or um, who the subsequent characters we'll talk about were or anything. I didn't even really know what I was reading. I just found it very interesting. I knew something bad happened here. And then as, you know, the years went on and found out more information, got involved in the business, asked people about him, whoever dealt with him all said the same thing. They, were, they even still kind of talked in hushed tones, dude. He was just an awful human. And for people in the boxing industry who usually find the good in anybody, including Don King or such, to say that about a man like this, universally, he's just kind of like, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy. That's really, really heavy. You know what I mean? So with that all being said, there's a story to tell here, a crazy story, and one even crazy for boxing standards. So here we are. <laughs> so like, let's, let's lay a little bit of the groundwork here, right? The year is 1987. All right, it's May. And the film Raising Arizona has been out for like two months, okay? Obviously, the big stars of the movie are Nick Cage, Holly Hunter, John Goodman's up in there. But, dude, Randall Tex Cobb, dude's a rough-around-the-edges heavyweight who challenged uh, Larry Holmes for the WBC heavyweight title. And he clearly, in this movie, kind of, you know, ate up the role as a villain. I remember him from when I was a little kid, dude. That, was, that shit was great. But banking off of the success of Raising Arizona in 1987, Randall Cobb returns from a two-year layoff to give boxing a shot again, and a dude named Rick Elvis Parker was promoting his comeback. And that's one of the first times we see Elvis Parker really coming into boxing is with Randall Cobb, Cobb right around this time. And so, you know, Parker did a lot of talking 
on behalf of Tex Cobb, but it's like, you know, nobody really needs to talk for Tex Cobb. So I don't know that anybody's really paying that close attention to what Rick Parker's saying at this point, because it's Tex Cobb, you know, that guy's like a quote a minute. You literally could just read any interview from Tex Cobb and it's fucking magnificent. But anyway, uh, around this same time, this exact same time was when uh, Elvis Parker had started promoting and getting into a friendship with a guy named Tim Anderson. And I mean, he's kind of, if you're talking about the story of Elvis Parker, he's prevalent throughout the story, kind of coming in and out. And their paths obviously meet much later. But this is kind of where Elvis Parker had really starting started getting into boxing. Like, uh, for instance, very quickly, in 1984, Tim, uh, Tim Anderson told this story about in 1984, when he had fought uh, and lost a decision to a guy named Roy Safford in Las Vegas. And apparently David Letterman had shown a clip of this fight over and over again on his on some show or a couple of nights or in a row or something like that. Because apparently Parker said Safford, Elvis Parker, relating this story, said Safford bit Anderson and hit him after the bell. So when Tim Anderson went to retaliate, the ref stepped in and Tim Anderson punched the ref. And so Anderson lost two points for it and wound up losing the decision, according to Elvis Parker. And this is kind of, and this was on ESPN. And so this was a big to do. And this is kind of where Elvis Parker, I guess, comes into the fray. But in any case, uh, as, as we're getting into this Elvis Parker business, this is kind of where it all unfolds, you know, over, uh, over there in Florida. I don't know why so many of these true crime stories wind up going through Florida, dude. What's going on, Florida? Yeah, I mean, Gray, you're pretty much an expert when it comes to craziness in Florida <laughs> and with the mid and um, a lot of the shadiness with the scene. So, what was the what was the backstory? Probably from the early '90s, you would say, going on the Rick, uh, Rick Parker era. Yeah, I mean, the Rick Parker era, as you said, he had a tr- like a lot of troop of heavyweights that we'll get into, but Tim Anderson was certainly one of them. He, had, yeah, he pretty much dealt with in heavyweights uh supplying b-sides to you know don king cards essentially uh names like terry turbo davis comes to mind uh i think of a heavyweight he had named mitch salmons who looked like a giant bouncer uh and there's really no footage of him unfortunately but if you look on box rack he was like 12 and one and pretty much as we'll get into with gastonow a lot of those fights were probably not legitimate at all. Uh, but he loved he loved promoting heavyweights. Um, and he yeah, he is based out of Florida. It's just uh, a strange time, a very soft commission out there uh, too at that point. So he was able to just put shows on and uh, it wasn't really a lot of uh, oversight, I would say. Uh, not like there is now, but probably a lot less than. I mean, this is an era where you know, guys were fighting under aliases and fake names, mm-hmm. and there wasn't really a lot of good record keeping, uh, reliable record keeping at all. So there were little little ways to get around things for sure. So um, building up a heavyweight was significantly easier in the '90s uh, than it is now. <laughs> it's and what's funny too is how Rick Parker's story and how he got into boxing. Because before this, you know, he was a pool hustler originally. He was he was always into some shadiness, but originally he did he was in the pool hustling, and then he um he went door to door selling with some like cleaner stuff that he made that was like twenty you know less than like ten dollars to make, but he was cashing in like you know twenty five k or whatever it was a week in profits, 
by, you know, using this shim sham um, magic cleaner, whatever, typical hustler. So, of course, he was going to get in the boxing. But what they said, his story, though, which is pretty hysterical, is that he had a chance meeting with Don King on a plane and that he was sitting next to Don King on a plane and men got in, they somehow got into a conversation. Parker said they wanted to get in boxing and Don, and Don King told him and Parker said something to the effect of get yourself a group of white heavyweights and then, you know, start your journey from there and get in touch with me or something like that. Don King always denied the story, by the way, but that's what Parker always said was um, Don King gave him his blessing. Give me a bunch of white heavyweights and go on your journey from there. And he was for a number of years in like newspapers and stuff like that. Some, some of them referred to as the white Don King, which I mean, I guess <laughs> take that for however they meant it, but they usually meant it in a, like a not good way. <laughs> of course, <laughs> you know, shady fucking, uh, just a gnarly businessman or whatever. I mean, but, this is an overweight dude with a weird toupee and funky glasses who was calling himself Elvis. So, I mean, I mean even know. worse if that was real, his real hair and he would, he had that Mississippi mud flap going with the, the Tennessee waterfall. And he got, he, it was a gnarly mullet, dude. It was good. It was yeah. real good. High quality. I think, I think we really need to emphasize here to listeners and our viewers that if you were to imagine just the cartoonish interpretation of what a boxing promoter looks like, just so over the top and ridiculous, like something out of like a fight night game. That was Rick Parker in real life. Like this dude was the walking stereotype of a scumbag. Just wanted yeah. it and lived it. Shameless, dude. Yeah, <laughs> dude. It's uh, it's it's just funny, like how many kind of stereotypes and kind of tropes and stuff like that you could jam into this story. Um, you know, I guess to his credit, slight credit, Rick Parker did help kind of revive uh, boxing around Orlando and like in this part of Florida for a couple of years. I mean, I don't know. I, I get along with some other promoters, it wasn't just him, but regardless, he did kind of kickstart a little bit of boxing, uh, boxing stuff in Florida. And he did work with top rank too. It was like, it, you know, he was kind of tied into this pipeline of promoters and stuff like that, even if it was somewhat on the outside or on the club level for the most part. But he actually handled some John Mugabe fights in the 1980s uh, after the Hagler fight. Um, let's see, Jimmy Young's comeback. I mean, he's, he's kind of, he finds- He was involved in a few Foreman fights as well. Yes, yeah, yep, yes. Yep. He, he gets involved in these comebacking heavyweights and that kind of becomes his like MO, you know, these getting involved in these like uh, Jimmy Young's comeback when he matched him against Tim Anderson in 1988. He called that show Boxing Mania One. <laughs> I mean, that shit's great. But in any case, uh, a lot of these things that that Elvis Parker was getting into, I would call them like red flags. You know, I would say, I'd say that a lot of the things that people were kind of encountering were massive red flags. But nonetheless, I think angling himself, especially with uh, George Foreman's comeback, which, you know, Eris, Gray, you guys, I think, would both back up that uh, his comeback was definitely considered at first like a farce. Like that shit was not taken seriously. People were like, what is this going on here? And then fairly quickly. I mean, I think it was getting away from the scene, but fairly quickly they realized that he was pretty serious. But at first, oh, yeah. yeah, it was it was bad. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, I think people didn't take it seriously because they looked at the people that were that were facilitating the comeback and backing him, and it was sort of just like a lot of um, money marks is the best way I can put it. It wasn't really lifelong boxing people, and like, of course, Parker 
cut one of those guys out of the deal completely and screwed him over later on. Uh, um, uh, and caught a, like, I think he was like one of the guys supposed to get 10% as, as, the, as the story goes of all of Foreman's future profits. And uh, Parker, of course, cut him out of the deal. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, yeah definitely. Know that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's part of the, so one of the books I'm going to say, one of the supplementary readings I would definitely recommend for anybody listening to this. Uh, Rob Russin, who was associate of Rick Parker, wrote a book called uh, Eight, Nine, Ten Year Out. It's available on Amazon. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of, I'm not going to say it's a masterpiece. It's got a lot of typos. It's self-published, you know, but it does have a lot of supplementary information that if you end up liking this podcast, you want to learn more and you want to get at least a firsthand account that may or may not be true. Um, it's in that book. But yeah, they does mention that you know, Parker screwed one of the, there were three guys basically and part of the Foreman deal and he, and he two, and the two of them screwed the third guy over. So, um, but yeah, definitely Foreman was facing a lot of low level competition. Uh, when his comeback came, it was a lot of, um, quantity over quality. And I think people were very much like, you know, I think it really wasn't until he got close to the title or maybe when he finally challenged for the title for the, uh, for the first time. And when he fought Holyfield that people really started to believe in the comeback and it was more just than a gimmick. Um, I think especially the Holyfield performance, obviously. And the money it made too, because it was a, it was a pretty blockbuster, you know, event, uh, or at least it, it far exceeded, I think some expectations. And I think that that made people go, ah, well, this is not only a dude who hits hard and is actually pretty decent at this stage, but can still generate a shitload of money. And I think that that probably helped also, peel him away from the Elvis Parker types who were like not going to fucking get him anywhere really you know not in Orlando so that was really what a lot of it came down to I think was you know he just he he didn't look good (laughs) a lot of those early fights if you watch them because a lot of them are on like VHS compilations and other stuff like that dude they're absolutely comical you know I mean Foreman's fighting either just absolute no hopers who just like couldn't get themselves out of their own way or he's fighting like extremely undersized washed up former champions like jb williamson or um who's that chicago promoter who's the the promoter from chicago that he fought oh he fought bobby hits yeah and there was during the fight during that one the the announcers were making fun of it because hits was so much smaller than foreman that they were calling it like man versus boy or something he fought cowie too right he did. He did. And Cowie was actually putting hands on him before Foreman started, you know, beating him in the kidneys and made him quit. Yeah. But again, some very small, much smaller opponent, of course. I'm, 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 I'm Cowie's height. Imagine me fighting Foreman. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just how strong he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just how strong he is. I mean, it's just, he didn't really lose any of that type of stuff, you know, on his on his time away no, no but it's yeah parker was one of those dudes he just as boxing people tend to do he was trying to leech onto things but the one central figure that you guys mentioned was um tim doc anderson because anderson was after i think i want to say it was the foreman fight that he you know he took a pretty pretty significant ass kicking in but he didn't really quit like he was stopped but you know he put up a pretty um courageous performance he was used more or less after that as like, you know, everybody's favorite comeback opponent because Larry Holmes used him as a comeback opponent. Um, <laughs> Harry Cotsia as well. I think Jimmy Young tried to, you know, there was, and that was all because of Parker. Parker had him and, you know, wanted to use him as his favorite kind of punching buddy. Yeah. He had a winning record and, you know, he could get a couple wins in the Midwest. It's a pattern you saw a lot in the nineties guys, mm-hmm. a lot of Midwest, a lot of guys in the South, 
packing up wins and then they would go and get beat by uh you know former world champions or uppercomers so it's a common theme that we see a lot in uh, 90s boxing for sure yeah and and actually uh according to tim anderson and i should like i said kind of before we started recording but we should note that or i should note that uh a good portion of this information is people who may or may not be super reliable who are recounting this stuff this stuff after the fact and so it's either impossible or you know very difficult to to actually confirm at this point but nonetheless tim anderson said that what had happened according to him was that um i can't i can't find any record of elvis parker actually being a rock and roll promoter he might very well be i mean i i just can't i just can't find it but regardless um that's that was... cedric by the way <laughs> little claims like that because cedric was a real rock promoter cedric kushner that is it, al Heyman was al Heyman was a concert promoter for yes, years he was too and Major i think he also promoted like comedy specials and stuff like that and in any case, uh, so that's what Tim Anderson actually seemed to confirm that, that he was some sort of music promoter for a while. And that when he was, um, that he had served as Elvis Parker's bodyguard for a time. And then he started, I guess, fighting for him and they, you know, became friends, yeah. you know, struck up a deal or whatever. And I think at one point, Tim Anderson was like eight and one or nine and one or something like that. I mean, he had a decent record. Um, that's the kind of record that at least at that point you, know, you could possibly pawn off to to a, a few pretty good fighters or comebacking fighters or something like that. Absolutely. But but yeah, um, in, in any case, I think that where Tim Anderson kind of goes away for a little bit, and one of the characters who really becomes far more prominent in this tale is Mark Gastineau, and I mean that's Gray Johnson's expertise area right there you know so we gotta talk about mark gaston out here all right so <laughs> this is where things get just it's it's the really this some slimy it gets really slimy from here so uh mark Gastonow, for those who don't know was a former new york jets defensive i don't know is he defensive end linebacker i'm not even i probably should know this considering i've done well i know he played defense because he was on the team that got like the shitload of sacks and shit so i mean but i don't know what position he was yeah i don't know he was really he was i think he was a defensive lineman yeah he was defensive lineman so basically he was one of the he was you know at that point like one of the top players in the nfl in the 80s um he was I mean, what we're going to get into here, he was a really bad guy. I want to preface this. Like, he is a bad guy. Like, I do not, like, I have nothing good to say about Mark Castanow as a person. Uh, he had a lot, like, basically people, like, remember him as this, this like, crappy boxing career, which is true. Like, he, he couldn't, he was one of these guys that came from football, started boxing too late, didn't really have a lot of skills. Um, but I think to really understand, like, he was personally and legally at rock bottom. Like, he had done... Uh, he had two uh, trials or uh, cases that were open against him. Like he had uh, gotten arrested uh, like literally two months before his pro debut for picking up pills at, a, at, a, at, a, at an Arizona airport. And he also got arrested for getting in a bar fight. And this is literally weeks before he ends up turning, uh, he turns pro. And I believe this would have been 91. Um, so basically he, he had, a, um, he had several relationships. He had a marriage that fell apart he uh, his spouse uh, the girl that he ends up cheating with ends up suing him as well uh he ends up getting with bridget nielsen for remember people know actress was in rocky four that relationship fell apart 
He went to the CFL very briefly to play football in Canada, but he was already so banged up. He gets ejected in the first game and never comes back. So he's really burned um, a lot of opportunities. He's burned a lot of bridges. He owes child support. He's lost. Uh, he lost one of his houses to, to his first wife as well. And like I said, he's got two legal cases pending against him. And so what better time, I'm sure he was in a great place mentally uh, to turn pro as a boxer uh, for Rick Parker. Uh, and the whole, the whole reasoning around Mark Gastonow's boxing career is a very cynical one because obviously he needed money. Rick Parker wanted to cash out on him, but the whole idea and the point of his boxing career was to get him to 12-0 to fight George Foreman on pay-per-view. That was, the, that was it. That was, all, that was the assignment. Get this man to 12 and 0 somehow, some way, and cash him out against George Foreman, where both men make millions of dollars on some sort of pay-per-view. Um, <clears throat> initially, uh, you know, his his pro debut starts um, on a show in Roanoke, Virginia, off television. Probably the smartest thing they could have done because Mark Aston, like I said, has probably at this point only been boxing for, you know, training for a year, year and a half. And he's too, he's very old. He's in his, I think, mid to mid thirties at this point. And as we know, like in boxing, you can't, like we saw with Frank Gore and Deron Williams in that exhibition uh, last year, like you can't just pick the gloves up and you're going to be automatically good. Like even those guys, like who had trained, you know, on their off seasons, like they had been, you know, they've been in the gym, you know, they, they've been around boxing, uh, you know, Frank Gore definitely, like when he was on the pads, looked like he at least had trained, you know, and knew what he was doing. And when they got in the ring, they looked miserable. They gassed out. So imagine being even less prepared than that. And you have Mark Gaston now making his pro debut in Roanoke, Virginia. And so they keep it off television, which, like I said, smart idea. And uh, his first opponent is uh, a man named Derek Dukes. And uh, you want to tell us, I know, Eris, you're a pro wrestling fan, so... What do you know about Mr. Derek Dukes, uh, the pro wrestler? Derek Dukes was um, a part of the, uh, an organization called the AWA, the American Wrestling Organization, American Wrestling Association, which in the early 70s, 60s, 70s, up until the early 80s was one of the big powerhouses until the WWF came around and Vince McMahon basically obliterated him, stole all of his talent, including Hulk Hogan. So... In the dying days of the AWA now, like really dying days, we're talking they weren't even wrestling in front of an audience. They just had like a giant green screen and fake things around and they were wrestling in an empty um, uh, in an empty studio. Um, Derek Dukes was a part of that group. Not a bad wrestler at, and nonetheless, but still a guy that probably was not making any money whatsoever at that point because checks were being bounced and, you know, the place was going bankrupt. And at that point, if you weren't in WWF or even WCW for that matter, it was going to be very, very hard to make a living um, as a professional wrestler. So as a guy like Dukes, he's probably looking for some extra money to make around the corner and stuff like that. And knowing that he's a guy as a wrestler, he could probably act his way through getting punched and being dropped and looking like it'd be somewhat credible. Um, easily enough, that's what they ended up doing. And he, Rick Parker found him and the rest is history. Yeah, like you said, AWA is super dried up by 1991. There's no more territories in wrestling. Uh, and he gets brought in. I think they found out he had a little bit of boxing background. Yeah, um, he did have a few fights, apparently. He had a few fights. But I thought what was uh, you know, um, it's exceptional is uh, was finding the 
for the longest time, I had no, I had, I just knew I, all I knew about this was what I saw on, on, uh, on box track. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I never got to see any footage of Mark Gaston's pro debut. And what a find when I was able to look this up on, uh, on YouTube uh, a year ago, and someone had posted the local news report of Mark Gastonow, uh, who was in, again, he's in legal trouble here, guys. He's, he's just gotten arrested for the bar fight. He's got the ken- pending case against him in Arizona for the pill. So that's happening. But they show the clip of the boxing match, uh, which is clearly no shot on the home camera. And you can see Derek Dukes take the, like he hits basically Derek Dukes, I would say on the peck. It's not even really the chin. It's one punch. It kind of hits him on the peck. And Derek Dukes does an absolutely beautiful flat back bump. Fight is over in 14 seconds. Now, I think the idea was they were like, well, you know, no one's going to really know about this because we're just going to, it's, it's a bunch of rubes in Roanoke, Virginia. Screw him. He's got his pro debut under his belt. 11 more to go. There's the problem. Uh, Derek Dukes <laughs> speaks to a reporter named Jay Mariotti, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with. You ever watch ESPN around the horn and, uh, Jay Mariotti was writing. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> he, uh, wrote for a paper that was actually very soon to be defunct known as the national. And in that article, uh, I think it was literally the last edition of the national before they ended up stop publishing. It, it was a very brief run of this newspaper. So Gasano killed the national. <laughs> Gasno, I guess, killed the national by accident. It was a, it has no, I think the national ending in this article running has nothing to do with each other, but it's still really <laughs> funny. Um, but it's basically uh, the article covers um, uh, Derek Dukes just basically admitting to a reporter, like, oh, yeah, like I absolutely 100% took a dive in this fight. Like, yeah, it was, that was prearranged. Like, they paid me. Like, I was at a Denny's hours, you know, the night before, and then we went over the fight. Like, they, they, it says that in the article. And of course, you know, they have to do damage control. No, 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 no. Derek Dukes is lying, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of goes away for a while. Like somehow, like, I don't know how there's like, like the grift has already been exposed <laughs> immediately, but somehow, because I guess, you know, this isn't the age of the internet. Keep that in mind. Like people really, it's, it's such a, re, it's a regional thing. Like it's not like this national news. Um, I mean, you know, if you're following boxing, like hardcore, maybe you're like, yeah, this is a scam. But like, honestly, it just didn't, it didn't really penetrate past like this regional, you know, situation. So yeah, like (laughs) it is what it is. So really, we don't really see any follow-up to Derek Dukes until many, many years later in like 1994, when uh, 60 Minutes will end up doing a follow-up on this whole story. And they interview Derek Dukes and he demonstrates on the air, the fucking back bump. Sorry, I don't mean to swear, but it's like, oh my God. And it's like the exact same back bump. You're like, this is, this is crazy. Like this fight was, when we talk about confirmed dives, like hundred percent absolutely happened. Like, like there's not a huge long list in boxing. Cause like, you know, it's, it's always, you know, sort of may have happened, you know, we don't know, but this one is like, absolutely was a dive. <laughs> so that's how we start his career. hundred percent. He dive. flops bro. Like it wasn't even like he took the full, his legs go flying in the air. It looks like he just got drop kicked by Jimmy Snooker. Yeah. Like time deal. It was was legit. It is so cartoonish. (laughs) In the way, like, Gaston clumsily comes running after him, too, the way he does it, just flailing, and then just kind of half slaps him, like you mentioned, and and the guy just flops like that. And Gaston almost trips and falls over. So the article, I actually have the cover of the national uh, paper from that time. I just pulled it up. Literally, the title of the front page says, The Fall Guy, and it's Derek Dukes in his wrestling gear, so they, they pull up the photo of him from the AWA. 
and the article is called did Derek do the domino and it's just like I said it's giant <laughs> it's the if you're a promoter this is this is a, a nightmare but like I said you know they find a way to get around the situation they they keep the grift the grift running uh and yeah like Gastonow ends up having I think I want to say he has like uh maybe eight or nine wins in a row um but I want to keep in mind that during this run of Gastonow wins, Patrick, uh, you may remember this. Rick Parker ends up probably his biggest run in uh, run in boxing. Uh, you know, his most famous uh, fight that he's involved with is with one Burt Cooper. Came one punch away, baby. One uh, punch away. So yeah, um, Burt Cooper, <laughs> as many of you know, smoking Burt was uh, was I. He was really a cruiserweight that was not an undersized heavyweight. Uh, from Philadelphia. Well, he, he's from uh, Sharon Hill, Pennsylvania. So just outside of Philadelphia, but basically Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, one of these guys that on a good day could absolutely take your head off. Great power. Um, but somebody who s- struggled with substance abuse and I think commitment issues. Who I think had the talent, but not necessarily the drive to um, to get. He should have gotten a lot further than I think he did. Um, but yeah, uh, you want, I, I mean, you probably remember the story more than I do, but yeah, uh, Burt Cooper challenged Evander Holyfield in the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, for the heavyweight title on very, very short notice. Yeah, that's it. That's actually, uh, I'm going to rewind just a slight bit yeah, because sure. one thing that I found that I was actually surprised to find, and it was like a snippet, like a very short blurb, um, the after Mark Gastonow's pro debut, and we'll go back to Burt Cooper in just a sec. I was able to find that a newspaper had mentioned that I'm guessing it was fight facts, but it must've been some other, cause they, they said that there were two record keeping agencies in boxing that could not find the name Derek Dukes. And so then, and they printed that in the paper and they're like, right now they're hot on the trail looking for the name Derek Dukes and they can't find anything, even though Elvis Parker said he was one and two going into the fight and they had a record and blah, blah, blah. So I found that really interesting. that They were actually even doing that in the early nineties. I was like, wow, you know, they're a couple of years later, able to slip in a fake doctor and all sorts of documents and shit like that. But apparently they're looking this up, but I found that really, really interesting. Um, but anyway, Burt Cooper is also, he is fairly important to this story for an unfortunate reason, not just the Holyfield fight, but the drugs. Um, Burt Cooper and Elvis Parker were apparently, uh, you know, in cocaine cahoots, bro. I don't know how else to say it, but they did a lot of cocaine. And so that figures into this. Yeah, Rob Russin claims that it is peak Parker was doing thousands of dollars of cocaine like a week. Maybe I, it, that kind of tracks with what other people were saying. Yeah. <coughs> so Cooper, so, yeah, yeah, Cooper is at this point probably not clean, but he gets a heavyweight title opportunity somehow. And on a week's notice. Yeah. Not even like less than a week's notice because of the fiasco that went down with the opponent changes over and over. Yeah, who was the original opponent? I don't even remember. So Mike Tyson was original. Was supposed oh, was this to be, the, all right? It was supposed to be the original. So this is I, the in, okay. This is the infamous Tyson Holyfield fight from the okay that didn't yes. happen. This is that yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tyson was originally was supposed to be the um was supposed to be the opponent, and then I think he uh, he injured his hand or whatever it was, and then you know goes to jail. Yada yada yada. 
the next opponent was the former Olympian Francesco Damiani, um, the Italian. That, that's most famous, known for, you know, Ray Mercer splitting his nose from an uppercut. But less, you know, again, um, less than like a week away from the fight or whatever, Damiani suffered a foot injury and withdrew. And then after he withdrew, that's when Burt Cooper got the call. Apparently, Cooper was sitting in his trailer, in his trailer park or something like that, or in his house, in his mobile home, whatever. And sitting there watching TV. Hey, you want to fight Holyfield in a few days? Okay. Holyfield got paid. I'm looking this up now. Holyfield gets paid. Uh, he goes from $30 million to fighting Tyson to still get $6 million to fight Burt Cooper. It's not bad. Cooper got paid $750,000. And that is probably the worst time in his life to receive that kind of money. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> like, absolutely facilitating all of his demons with a giant and, check. And when you, uh, when you look at the timeline, too, you can definitely see, I don't have any evidence for this, but you could certainly envision Elvis Parker taking his massive cut of that money and just swiveling it right into the Mark Gastineau fund, you know, trying oh, to, you know, getting the ship going. And I mean, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Gray, Mark Gastineau's run of several wins in a row. And one of the wins that I was looking up was a guy named Charles Nail, Charlie Nail, who was making his pro debut. And the only reason Charlie Nail was chosen, according to newspapers at the time, was because he literally won a tough man competition at the Ho Oklahoma State Fairgrounds before that. And <laughs> so yeah. quite yeah. shadily, Rick, uh, Elvis Parker refuses to tell newspapers, media, anybody who the opponent is going to be until the day before the fight. And then they, Charlie Nail, after the fight, says, oh, yeah, we signed for the fight a month ago. And, and up until the day before the fight, Elvis Parker saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. We got, we got several top-level heavyweights just waiting in the wings. We're just waiting for contracts. Day before the fight, it's Charlie Nail. So, so needless to say, he's pulling a couple switcheroos here, man. He, it's he's already on on borrowed time, I'd say. Charlie Nail, twenty one second loss. That's the twenty only twenty one seconds Charlie Nail ever fought professionally. Um, <laughs> another. So, I want to just before we get to the rest of Gastel's career, I just was thinking about: Can you imagine what his heart rate was in that third round of Holyfield Bow? Or sorry, Holyfield Cooper when Cooper hits Holyfield uh, so hard that he has oh, a lot yeah, of hopes. Yeah. And he gets the knockdown. He gets the knockdown call. I mean, my God, that man, that man must have been so close to just seeing, seeing the sides of his, everything in his eyes go white and collapse uh, from the craziness that, that what could have been. Can you uh, imagine if Rick Parker was holding the heavyweight championship? Rick Cooper nearly won the heavyweight championship twice. And he, and he, and he arguably was closer against Gore. That's insanity. <laughs> Like absolutely insane. It's just insane. Uh, imagine if he was just a few inches taller. My God. And could have, could have, could have been a hell of a fighter. Uh, um, but yeah, Gastineau ends up fighting uh, uh, after Charlie nail a few fights later fights a guy named Kevin Barch, who was the brother of one Sonny Barch, who was a heavyweight that fought uh, and took a dive against Tex Cobb. 
And so see how we're all the whole thing wide open. How this all puzzles together. See how this all spins around, guys? Because that he was a. It's uh, it's just a whole group, a cast of recurring characters, dude. It's like yep, Sonny Barch, a friend of uh, a heavyweight part of the Tim Tim. uh, Sorry, part of the Elvis Parker troupe. Uh, So uh, ends up doing cocaine uh, the night before, all night long with uh, with Tex Cobb, and they end up going to a fight on uh, uh, Tuesday night fights. Barch falls down in the first round. Fight gets changed to a no decision because they both failed the drug test. So, uh, and Kevin Barch is the truck driving brother of uh, Sonny, Sonny Barch, who admits in his interview on 60 Minutes uh, and also in Sports Illustrated, he has no combat sports experience and was just brought in at the last second. So, and I believe that, you know, Parker announced him as 10 and 1. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you get the idea, you get the drift. <laughs> And, and uh, part of this whole, you know, where it kind of starts to unfold to the public is in 1993, uh, Sports Illustrated alleges that Barch took a dive against Randall Cobb. But not only that, I mean, like, it's a pretty detailed narrative. Like, it's not just like, yeah, we heard so-and-so said they took a dive. Like, it's there's there's some pretty clear, or at least seemingly clear details Um also, they said at the time that Randall Cobb had tested positive for marijuana after the fight, too. So, I mean, whatever. They're just fucking partying. But regardless, um, in this Sports Illustrated article, basically, Barch, he, number one, spoke to the writer. And so the writer's kind of relaying what he says. But then also, on top of that, Sports Illustrated says in the article that they paid him, Barch, to write a first-person account that they published in Sports Illustrated yep. of what happened in the fight. And according to Barch, uh, on I, it was either the day before or the morning of, I can't remember which, but either way, they met in Barch's hotel room. Randall Cobb, he says, comes in with his head down and, hey, buddy, sorry, I'm, you know, I'm kind of not feeling real good or something like that. And so Barch says, all right, well, let's take it three rounds. I'll go, I'll go down after a couple shots, no problem. And Randall Cobb's just like, I don't even know if I'll last that long. My arm hurts or something like that. And Barch is just like, all right, well, like, let's figure this out. And they got the three knockdown rule. So that's precisely what they do. Tex Cobb mauls him, you know, a couple times, shots barely land. Barch goes down each time, third knockdown, it's over. And so that they recount this entire process or whatever in the Sports Illustrated article. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is kind of where it starts to unfold. And then on top of that, this is pointed to Elvis Parker. Like it's the behest of Elvis Parker because Randall Cobb's on the comeback. Uh, you know, he's uh, in, in 1993 too, you remember Randall Cobb's in Ace Ventura. So it's like right around during these times where he's having a, a little bit of a resurgence because of his acting career and his popularity is going up. Like there's some... You know, there's some scandal or some weird thing in boxing that happens or they're trying to bring him back from retirement or something like that. So it's, you know, it, this is where it really starts to come apart. And this is, I guess, where you can say where um, Tim Doc Anderson makes his appearance back again now, right? Yeah, we had three one about six months here um, before the this is a uh, or in mid 92. Uh, this fight. Uh, yeah, it takes place at the Civic Auditorium. San Francisco, California on my birthday, June 9th. Uh, it's a Tuesday night fights card and it is a six round undercard bout main event, by the way, John David Jackson against Pat Lawler for the 
the Irish w- Pat. Irish Pat for the WBO 154-pound championship. So this fight makes it on the undercard. Uh, f- interestingly, a five-round fight, not a six-round fight. Got to go with the old five. I guess they were trying to – they weren't ready for six rounds, yet five makes sense. I don't really know why they do five-rounders. But um, five-round fight – Tim Doc Anderson is the the opponent brought in, and this is this is really this is Gastonow's first nationally televised fight, and they obviously want an opponent with credibility that's going to give Gastonow credibility. Parker is begging Tim Doc Anderson to take uh to, to just just take a dive, just phone this in. Money is being offered, everything is being offered to Tim Anderson to throw this fight. Tim Anderson. It's like, no, I'm not going to throw the fight. Uh, then I guess they're under the impression that maybe Tim Anderson's going to throw the fight, but maybe he changes his mind. But uh, whatever happens, we know what happened on camera. <laughs> it ends up being uh, an, an absolutely embarrassing night for Mark Gastonow. Um, I would say it's more embarrassing than getting knocked down. It's just looking like an amateur for five rounds. It's not just, you know, it's one thing to get knocked down in the first round, but it's another thing to look helpless, weak, uh, inept. And that's exactly what happens in this fight, which you can watch on YouTube, by the way, to a club uh, fighter too, to, to like a, a you know, a guy yeah. who yeah. now is ultimately a club shape. fighter. Yeah. Like, like I, I need to em- it's, it emphasize here. Mark Gastineau does not win one second of this fight. He is completely outboxed, beaten up. He's tired. He's huffing and puffing. He's out of ideas very, very quickly. And the grift is completely exposed. Yeah. And the back, you know, so like the backstory to it first was that like how Anderson became involved again was originally Anderson broke off with get uh, with um with excuse me Rick Elvis Parker a few years before that because Anderson a little backstory on him you know a guy that probably should have never been in boxing you know what I mean he's a former baseball player a very clean living guy primarily to the point where he was even afraid to take aspirin like he just was all about just good health and all this other stuff so. Anyways, fast forward a few years, he's already getting fed up now with um with Parker and his scheming and owes him a lot of money, like a lot of promoters always do, right? And he's getting undercooked and all that. So one day, I believe it was, they had um they were going to a school, a local elementary school, to do a make a say no to uh, say no to drug speech. And they pull up in a limo. Anderson pulled up on his own. He didn't ride with them. He opens up the door to Parker's limo. And there was Parker, there was Sonny Barch, I believe, and a few others. Lines of coke everywhere, Crown Royal open. These dudes are just lit, right? They're about to go into a school and talk to a bunch of kids about saying no to drugs. <laughs> and Anderson is fuming. Like, he is absolutely disgusted. He just can't believe what he's seeing. Parker, you know, coke all over himself. And Anderson's like, you know, fuck this, I'm out. Like, he's like, I quit. I'm, I'm done with all this. So he did. He didn't he even figured I'm going to not worry about the money, you know, cut my losses, just be gone. But like you alluded to, if you a little bit while, while Gostino was getting was rolling on, they needed a credible opponent in came Anderson. And that's when um, that's when uh, Rick Elvis Parker was kind of just like, hey, you know, you want to come in, you want to throw the fight, yada, yada, yada. And Anderson at first originally agreed to it and said, sure, I'm going to go with it. But he always had the impression that he wanted to screw Parker over. He was pissed off about what happened all over those years. So right before the fight, when they were going to go rehearse and talk about like they did for all those other opponents, that's when he goes up to Anderson. Anderson, at this point now, knowing that they can't cancel out on him or try to find another dude because they were already locked in. It was as close, goes, 
hey, by the way, Mark, I'm going to kick your ass tonight. Deal's off. And both of them, Parker and um, Gaston, are staring at him like, what? What do you mean? And they're like, yeah, man, you know, I'm, I'm not going with any of this. We're going to see you in the ring tonight. I'm going to beat your ass. And then, like you said, he just, it's embarrassing, dude. It's, it's really, really embarrassing. Which, which actually brings me to another point. Maybe you have some insight on this, Greg. How did how did Jimmy Glenn involved was involved in all of this? Because he was as his gas nose trainer. How like Glenn was always a very credible guy. Everybody yeah. always loves him. Yeah. It kind of makes no sense to me. <laughs> Absolutely insane that uh, he got a legitimate trainer. Uh, I don't know. I I guess he I guess he owed him a favor or something like that. But yeah, they. I don't know how long that relationship lasted necessarily, but I know he was, I, I want to say he was involved with Gastineau potentially pre Parker. Like, I think he might've been training him when Gastineau had just retired from CFL and was okay. still living. Um, he was living with like the owner of that CFL team he was like living in that dude's house with Bridget Nielsen. And like, he's like training with Jimmy Glenn and doing box. like, it, it's just, okay. It's just, dude, like the, the personal stuff, like it's, we skipped a bunch of it, but it's dark, dude. Like he's, he's grifting people left and right. Like he's, he's not really playing football in Canada. Like he promised to, and all this stuff. So I, I think he's, I want to say he might've been pre maybe slightly pre Parker and he hung around at least for the beginning of his career. I don't, um, I don't know if he, did he, did he, did he manage, did he train Parker the, or sorry, did he train uh, Gastineau's entire career? I'm not sure, but I know. I mean, I think he was in the corner for that fight, for the, yeah, was for he the that fight. For Jimmy, like for Jimmy Glenn's part, he actually trained like he wasn't he was the kind of trainer where he would like uh, freelance train, basically. So there were a lot of fighters where he trained for only a few fights, including some comebacking fighters. So I'm not that surprised by that more. Mostly, I'd be surprised that he would stick with it once he realized that, you know, there was some shit going on or that clearly yeah. gas and how fucking sucked, but or it reminds me of Freddie Roach training, uh, Mark, Mickey Rourke. When, uh, he, with that point, he was just parking cars on like, his <laughs> job. and then the next thing you know, is one of his first forays in the training is Mickey, Rourke, <laughs> Mickey Rourke, <laughs> take fighting guys, taking dives in Germany. So, you know, it doesn't, again, it, it doesn't surprise me to see names that we, we find, we know and find credible getting tied up in this. Okay. Yeah. And I never saw Mickey Rourke fight too, until like years, years, years later. And I was assumed like he was pretty good. And then I saw the video and he was not good. I was like, really? I, I was, I thought he was good. Cause everybody was saying he was a pretty good fight. He was not good. Uh, at least the, the all the video I've seen of him, especially that fight he took in Germany, the guy was beating him up and then took a dive. Um, that's just one example, but yeah, yeah, he's not good. There's a rumor that Carlos Monzon knocked him out. Yep, you, I believe sure. that 100%. That is, that is, that is, I, I, I can't remember if I talked about that on the podcast, but I know for a fact that was brought up. I, I found that in my research that Monzon yeah, yeah. beat him up in sparring. <laughs> Yeah, beat the fuck out of him. That's good shit, dude. As he should, as he should have. I mean, this is the same guy that that said his dad was dead to the media when his dad was was quite alive. So, like, you know, Mickey Rourke was like like Gastonal, very dishonest man who did a lot of dishonest things. But Gastonal obviously is a lot worse because he quite he, the he, character. Yeah, quite a character. Um, but yeah, so after so after Gastonal loses to Tim Anderson, he's they they you would think that they would have just like you know cut their losses this no they go right back to it like he is fighting like like a month later and they are still doing the same thing he's fighting on these club shows 
in Missouri and Florida. Um, he fights a guy only known as Samson. No, no last name, just a guy named Samson, who was apparently a, uh, 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 a tough man champion. Uh, I, don't, I just thought the Samson, Samson, main event, he's fighting the, the dangerous Samson. Uh, of course, uh, on a, uh, on a Randall Tex, uh, Cobb undercard, uh, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, Randall Tex, Tex Cobb on that, uh, night fought a man named Andre Smiley, who was 026 and one, and has also gone on record in a local Florida newspaper that his career is full of dives. So really, you can just, again, you're, we're, we're, we're connecting the pieces, we're drawing things together here. Uh, but we finally get to, I think what you guys know a lot more, uh, know much about it's pretty infamous, uh, is when we get to the, uh, December of 1992, we're in Oklahoma city, Oklahoma. And Tim Anderson is asked to rematch uh, Mark Gastonow because they want to uh, wrong the right on his record. So this is where, when things get uh, start to get pretty fucked up. Really dark day in boxing. Yeah. And you know what, dude? It's like, it's it's almost, you know, we'll get to the details in a sec, but it's almost like when you start going back over all the shit that we said, it's like, it almost makes sense. You know what I mean? Like it almost, it almost all definitely makes sense regardless of how kind of conspiratorial or whatever it is so Mm -hmm. according to uh tim anderson he's asked to go in and rematch mark gastineau and i mean it's kind of the similar situation i guess he's uh he said according to tim anderson he was owed like a hundred and thirty thousand dollars or something like that by elvis parker who knows if that's 100 percent the case i don't know but yeah, he fought. I mean, this is a guy that fought uh, Larry Holmes and Foreman. So who knows what his purses were for those bouts? Um, but yeah, it sounds high, but it's very possible. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I could see on both. I could see on both ends. Parker's definitely shady enough to withhold that much money, but at the same time, you know, in a couple minutes, we'll get to why that's difficult yeah. to believe. Um, but in any case, you know, similar situation to the rematch. Tim Anderson says that uh, going into this, that his normal trainer and his normal corner all of a sudden is not able to appear for this fight. And so he gets, you know, and this is kind of like one of those strange stories that we hear after some of the infamous fights from boxing history that like such and such fighter, like Mike Tyson against Buster Douglas, for instance, you know, doesn't have his normal corner and it's fucking cursed now and shit like that, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, so Tim Anderson doesn't have his normal corner and he says that he is assigned a corner that he doesn't know. He doesn't know any of these people and that rather than the usual water bottle that he drinks from in his corner, he's having to drink from paper cups supplied by this corner that he doesn't know, which according to him was supplied by Elvis Parker. Uh, And so rather than absolutely taking apart Mark Gastineau, in this rematch, which you would expect based on the verdict of the first fight, because gas now looks such like a total turd in there. Uh, rather than that, Tim Anderson pretty much just falls apart. According to him, starts hallucinating, uh, becomes fatigued and just, yeah, it, it all implodes for him. And Mark gas somehow gets revenge. Yeah. Um, this fight is not on TV as well. Keep that in mind. Uh, and it kind of is, is, is a nice little F you to Rick Parker. This fight does not get picked up by the wire either. So it is not known really uh, in boxing circles that, that Mark Gastonow has righted the, you know, you know, on paper at least has knocked out Tim Anderson. So I, I always found that kind of 
dark a little bit of dark humor i guess that uh they spent all this time screwing him over for this fight only for no one to know about it yeah nobody even covered it nobody did shit no one it's, did shit. what's really sad though is that i mean there is footage i guess you know a handheld camcorder footage that's like appeared on youtube in the past few years and you can totally see too gastonel just sucks though he's an atrocious fighter and anderson apparently drugged and zombied out already he still ends up lasting i think what was it five or six rounds before he finally collapses but it's what's done to him after the fight which is just like really just like really fucked up and tragic where you just kind of like you know what this solidifies parker as the ultimate scum among scum of humans is that whatever like pat you just alluded to you said that he started hallucinating and started like you know feeling fun like he was going through it so at this point he collapsed um, he was brought back to the dressing room, um, started suffering sickness, see whatever it was. Going started... through it's the, the technical medical term, by yeah. the way. Like he, was, he was going through some shit. Like he was really like, you know, throwing up, vomiting badly. And to the point afterwards, I think he just ended up passing out. He was out. The and... kind of shit where if it's an actual fight, you know, like you're like, get the fucking doctor right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? yep, totally. So th- this fight is on YouTube. Um, it was not for a very long time. It, uh, again, I had never seen this fight until I really started um, doing research. Um, it was, I mean, by a long time, I mean, I think it went up five years ago. But I mean, keep in mind, like, I've been on YouTube since like almost day one. So I was this was like a bucket list fight for me. So when it when it Same popped thing. up on YouTube, I was like, Oh, my God. So um, it's a it's a it's a fan cam, of course. But if you want to go watch that fight, it, it's grainy footage. It's again, it's from the 90s. But you can definitely kind of see like this man looks very lethargic in the ring. It's quite obvious. And the flurry that drops him again, Gastonow never threw a really impressive punch in his life. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's quite obvious that, you know, something, something certainly happened that night that was um, very illicit and very awful. And they found him. That's what the thing, they found him in the back locker room uh, after everyone had left. They were just going to leave him there to die or whatever. And um, a, a janitor happened to stumble upon him in the locker room afterwards, still unconscious. Yeah, they said a janitor came across him and he was basically on the ground, you know, in pain, uh, more or less like semi-coherent. And that, according to him, they had taken him to the emergency room. And at the emergency room, an emergency room doctor had told him that they believed he was poisoned or something like that by either again, according to him, amphetamine or uh, um, what's Benadryl, an antihistamine. So that sounds probably unrealistic. Amphetamine is probably more along the lines here. But in any case, uh, that's what he says happened to him. And that starting from that point for the next two or so years, he says that there are periods of time where he's literally not even able to get out of bed and that he incurs serious liver and kidney damage over this period. Um, and that he's, it sounds like basically he was just stewing about it the entire time. Rightfully so. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I, I would be like, too. You know, he's been, and uh, when it gets to that, what's, what's really bad about this too, is that after, you know, what all this, really being able to recover and now he's trying to go to these places there's no one that can give him a right answer because no one knows what he's actually poisoned with and so because they don't know what he was poisoned with anderson they can't help him really to you know besides just kind of give him stuff to help him like you know get by day to day and so the factor of the matter is that anderson 
to find out any way that he can somehow be helped, he has to find out what he was poisoned with. And if he has to find out what he was poisoned with, he has to go to Rick Parker. And at that, well, it should be mentioned too, I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here, but at this point too, I believe Anderson was in the process of writing a book about everything he was going through, all of his experiences. Very possible. It Yes. And actually I, uh, okay. So before facing George Foreman, I know we're kind of jumping around here, but I mean, dude, this is a convoluted story. So, I mean, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to kind of just, there's a lot lot here. Yeah. It's yeah. Without actually laying it out on paper, it's, it's, it's difficult. So I'm sorry, just deal with it. Everybody listening, but uh, right around the time of the George Foreman fight, going into the George Foreman fight for Tim Anderson, they're interviewing him because of course he's facing George Foreman. So who is this masked man facing George Foreman type of shit, you know? So going into this fight, they're interviewing him. And one of the things that he says, they're asking him about his boxing career. And he says, boxing is full of quote lies or I'm sorry, lies, cheats, liars, sorry, liars, cheats, whores, and a couple of nice guys. And so at the time that all of this goes down, supposedly Tim Anderson is writing a book that's something along those lines. It's some variation of that liars, cheats, and whores or something like that. Uh, And that's his plan is to write this boxing book. And also during this time that he's bedridden, while he's trying to figure out what the hell happened to him, according to him, he is contacting Elvis Parker and going, what the fuck? What happened? What'd you give me? What, you know, what is this? And that each time he contacts Elvis Parker, Parker threatens him or Parker says something that makes him, you know, try to throw him off his trail or something like that, including, according to Tim Anderson, Tim Anderson's sister is a quadriplegic. She's wheelchair bound and, uh, you know, more or less helpless in that regard. And according to Tim Anderson, Elvis Parker threatened his sister said he gave him a piece of paper with his sister's uh, address on it, you know, as a vague threat, I guess. And so throughout this time, according to Tim Anderson, again, he is presenting Elvis Parker as somebody who's threatening him, who has already done harm to him and won't tell him why, or, you know, won't tell him what. And obviously the rage and the tension is building. And it was at this point now where, like you just said, Parker at the is has been threatening him every time that Anderson tries to reach out or tries to get something going on. Parker has threatened him. Um, what they're gonna do? And Anderson needs some answers. Like he's he's you know boiling, he's brewing, he's at the point of that no return now. He's pissed off. His life has been ruined. A guy that was in perfect tip top health at one point and really took care of himself and his body now is in shambles because of whatever bullshit that Parker gave him. And just you know, some revenge plot because Anderson cost him millions of dollars, apparently. Um, his life is in ruins. And anybody who's kind of pushed at that point, I guess, mentally, you know, you, you can't, you gotta, you know, it's, it's easy to understand why they would be pushed at a point what they're gonna end up doing something really drastic. And that's where Anderson was pushed at this point. So, he said, you know, he was right. He was in the process of writing this book. He was, he needed to find some other information. So at this point he reached out to Parker. He says on the premise that he wants to finish up writing this book and he needs to get some quotes from him. And, but what he really wants to do is get the info of what the drugs he was put into him and all this other stuff. So he's going to kind of like, you know, he has a couple of um, motives here. So as he goes to, to Parker's residence, that's when he packs a gun as um, extra insurance. So the legend is that, yeah, he was willing to pay Parker 
$10,000 to get him to admit that he poisoned him for the book. So they meet up at an embassy suites. And after that, really, we don't, the only people that really know that conversation is one's dead and the other one's in jail. But, and the only other element of this is that also for extra insurance, apart from the gun, is he, uh, Tim Anderson went with Elvis Parker's son and sister to the hotel room. Conversation started calmly and, you know, somehow he got shot 22 times. So, uh, yeah. And uh, I guess when they Tim, Tim Anderson was asked, why did you shoot him 22 times? He said, I felt sorry for him. He wouldn't die. <laughs> uh, tells you right there what his frame of mind must have been that night or whatever they talked about. But, um, yeah, pretty crazy. Uh, to, what a comment. He just he yeah. felt bad for him. He wouldn't die. And Parker was a big dude. So when you say that, for whatever reason, my morbid mind, I just picture this him just rolling around groaning every time he gets hit with a bullet. <laughs> right. It's probably 350 at this point. Yeah. Know, not small. Well, in, um, in some of the reports immediately afterward, uh, like uh, Tim Anderson supposedly told the police that um, – so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, who knows what what's exactly happened, because this is coming from Tim, Tim Anderson after he's already killed Elvis Parker, according to him, that he had laid out this entire plan, like, all right, you know, record, you're going to tell me what happened. And then as soon as that happened, Elvis Parker smashed that shit and was like, you know, for this little stunt, your quadriplegic sister is going to die now yep, or something right. like that. I mean, I who knows what kind of... It's so crazy to me how this could possibly go down, but it's almost like th when going over this entire story, what's more likely here, right? Like what's more likely that Tim Anderson was poisoned and something really did happen to him? Or is it more likely that somehow magically after he totally outclassed Mark Gastonow the first time Mark Gastonow learned a couple tricks or something like that and now... You know he's he's gotten legit revenge. That sounds not legitimate. There's whatsoever. no way that meathead could ever learn how to throw a proper punch in his life, like Gray said earlier. That dude was the ultimate scrub. He sucked. You know how badly Foreman would have killed him. Oh, yeah. oh man! Oh, oh Alonzo Highsmith whooped his fucking ass. So, I, mean, I mean, they did. Yeah, when he still yeah. tried to continue after the that's whole the thing. Yeah, I was gonna say that's the epilogue. Uh, <laughs> is that really what's so effed up about this whole thing is that Parker released Gastonow from his deal, I want to say a couple months after the second Anderson win. Didn't want to, didn't feel like paying him and investing in him anymore. And I believe the, the Highsmith fight was just him taking that fight at his own accord, which of course took place in Japan. Um, was that on how, what undercard? I think that was forming Crawford Grimsley, though. No? I think you're right. I believe that was former Crawford. Yep. Yeah. And, and of course the uh, infamous Tommy Morrison. That's right. Marcus, Marcus Rowe fight, <laughs> which Tommy Morrison had AIDS at that point, or uh, he had HIV, whatever, um, at that point, and uh, they still let him fight, so crazy, um, but yeah, he ends up losing to Alonzo Hyde-Smith, that's how his, his career ends up wrapping up, um, pretty, pretty awful, but I mean, at the end of the day, right, like, this man went to jail over a fight that never made the national news, no one cared about it, it wasn't televised, he ends up releasing Gaston out several, like maybe less than six months later. It's just like ridiculous. <laughs> like it never had to happen. Why would he got poisoned for nothing? <laughs> and and his epilogue, Tim Anderson's epilogue, is he winds up getting a, a grand jury indicts him 
Because I yeah. mean, why would why the fuck would they not? He literally admits to killing Elvis Parker. So of course they indict him, but they indict him for murder. Um, and I mean, I don't know. The way, he, the way he shoots him too, by the way. He shoots him right. and he doesn't kill him right away. He shoots him in the legs, shoots him in the dick. Like it's <laughs> brutal. It's nasty. And reloads and, and yeah, reloads, keeps going. And guys going. begging, guys begging for his life, kills him with a shot in the back of the head. So I mean, just again. You you think of the jury who doesn't have all the nuance, the subtext to the story, and they hear that part of it. And and who knows? I don't know nothing about the trial. So for all we know, that shit is like you can't even bring it up at the trial, in which case the jury doesn't hear it and they don't know. But but I mean, you know, from Tim Anderson's perspective, if he really believes that this stuff happened, I mean, I'm not saying he was justified. I'm simply saying you could understand how he felt that way. Yes. Um, but so he gets indicted. Uh, and he winds up going on trial and unfortunately being found guilty. Um, and throughout this entire process, some of the people that we've named are witnesses at the trial or testifying at the trial. Uh, you know, Elvis Parker's former associate is testifying at the trial. Uh, the, the, I think they found the janitor at some point that found Tim Anderson and tried to get him to testify at the trial. I mean, and it winds up almost almost becoming a circus but it went just under the radar enough that it didn't quite get there you know and so um one of the crazy things though to me is that a lot of the the dollar amounts that we're talking about with the hundreds of thousand dollars and shit like that is so crazy because throughout his entire career other promoters fighters commission members and shit like that literally said yeah rick parker was bouncing checks to me for like 300 bucks dude that guy couldn't that guy wasn't paying shit he wasn't paying for flights for fighters you know he's making fighters drive from blah 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 so either he was an incredible tightwad or man so much of this shit just does not add up which i mean i guess it doesn't have to because the tail's fucking crazy and the guy's a low-life crazy ass but it's wild man I think his drugs, though, man, honestly, a lot of his That's cocaine true. probably fueled a lot of his actions, including poisoning and all that. Because when dudes are yayed out, especially, like, constantly, like, really, really going in. I mean, you hear the stories of, like, the cocaine cowboys back in the 80s and how crazy those guys were. And that they'd be making the most wild decisions while they had a mound of coke in front of them and just zooted up a line and, you know, threatening and pointing things. You see, Park, like, I can just picture Parker, just envision this, with a big plate in front of him and some crown royal on the side, just blowing lines continuously. Well, no, no, we need to, ah, we need to poison that motherfucker for what he did to us, and I'm going to take this. And, ah, ah. Like, absolutely. Yeah, that's, probably, that's probably close to what happened, to be honest. Um, probably just nonchalantly said, we need to, we need to fuck this guy over. Who do, yeah, we, yeah. who do we have? Who 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 do we have that works at a vet, <laughs> like or something like that? You know, like who who do we know? Um, and yeah, they. Uh, but right, he's doing drugs. He has a stable of heavyweights. Most of them are doing drugs. Um, he's having guys, you know, take like I said, take take fights that they were never going to win or take dives. Another one that comes to mind, Terry Turbo Davis admits that he tries to uh, Parker tries to pay him to take a dive against Riddick Bowe in 1994. In 94 so i mean pretty much every member of that of that t- rick parker stable at one point or another is asked to, to do the deed for uh, a better fighter um in, in in quick fashion so you know again it's a it's a scummy tale uh it's it's one that really took place on the 
on the fringes of boxing, but that's really where most of the, you know, the dives uh, and the, and the infamy comes from. It's not really the major cards. It's sometimes these smaller shows, smaller time promoters um, that want to think they're the big fish, but really they're nothing in the grand scheme of things. There's so, and I always knew in the Midwest, you just, it's just so, I even, you know, even when I was a kid, I just knew it was sketchy as hell. You go through those old boxing digest magazines and you show like, you know, the USA results all over the place. And then randomly they'll show photos and they'll tell you what location this fight took place. And then you'll see a dude like Craig Cummins, who I think fought for the super middleweight title in Kansas from Kansas like, city, just beating up an absolute schleb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rob Conway. Uh, yeah. We could, we could do a whole podcast on Midwest guys with, same man like those like you just I don't, even as a kid i would see this and then you could see the background location i was like that doesn't look legit what the hell is this well and and one of the guys actually who they interviewed in the days after elvis parker's death was actually sean gibbons because sean gibbons commented on a bunch of, of the work that they had done and he was basically like yeah you know like elvis was he's pretty crazy he's you know he's i mean he did, I, he didn't say anything damning of course he wouldn't but yeah, it was it was just funny. And I guess whatever you believe, you know, that just kind of goes to show how interconnected so many of these people of course, are. Sean Gibbons was involved. <laughs> well, I don't know how much he was involved in this, but he knew Elvis. Well, no, no, I'm just saying like he knew him. That's what I meant. Yeah. Of course he knew him. The guy that drove Buck Smith to two different towns to pick up two different wins in the same night. So I mean, you know, that's wow. That's yeah, it. he's got his own he's got his own little uh, you know, pocket of history there, but yeah, I mean, anybody, anybody you mentioned the Parker from that era that dealt with him will, will never had a good word. Even, oh. even Cedric, uh, Cedric Kushner, who never, I mean, Don King, for instance, screwed him over countless times. And Cedric still didn't really have a lot of bad things to say about him. He just kind of, you know, talk about their relationship. The first time, one of the first times I was really talking with Sed, and I mad just because I was always fascinated with anyone who knew Parker. I was like, did you ever deal with Rick Elvis Parker? And he paused for a minute and he just sat there and he was like, he was a bad, bad man. <laughs> and he said some kind of story about how he got screwed over. But like, those were his first words. I'm like, holy shit, man. If you call him somebody a really bad dude, they must have been a scumbag. Yeah. Well, it's believable. We just talked for over an hour about how scumbaggy he is. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's up to everybody else to, <clears throat> to decide whether or not it was deserved or what they really believed happened because some of it's so it's basically taking so many, the worst, the worst elements of so many of the other stories in boxing and meshing them together. And one dude winds up dead over it. And the other one is still sitting in prison now to this day over this. So it's wild stuff, man. But Hey, I really appreciate gray you taking the time and giving us your Mark Gastonow knowledge, dude. That's very important <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for letting me talk about Mark Gastonow. And uh, like I said, I, I'm glad I got to finally uh, talk about this timeline I had built. It, uh, like I said, there's just so many layers of insanity to that man and his career. And we, I mean, we only got into a part of it, but um, yeah, I mean, my, at the end of the day, my, my feeling is like, he, he was a really awful guy uh, uh, promoted by an even worse person. So uh, that's how boxing is sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah. So um, is what it is. Uh, but you know, he got it. He got a hell of a true crime story out of it, I guess. But yeah, it's one of those things. It's like, you just, the more you read about it and the more you think about it, it's, it's, it's sad, man. It really is. Eris, dude, I, uh, I also appreciate you offering your, 
your particular knowledge of 1980s and 90s heavyweights, dude. I mean, this shit's like right in our all of our fucking wheelhouses here. It's a meeting of the minds. Fantastic. Yeah, this was a great time, dude. This was, like you said, one of my favorite eras of the sport uh, to talk about a subject that is absolutely batshit crazy, but something that kind of has been forgotten about over the years. Yeah, this was good. So, I mean, I, I guess kind of just goes without saying, man, if, you, if you're looking for boxing records, I don't know where else you're going if you're not going to box rec. I mean, I, I don't think I really need to, need to tell you to, but you should because Gray works there and that I guess would in some roundabout way help him. But probably more helpful in the meanwhile is follow Gray on Twitter at box rec Gray. That's that probably more helpful. Yeah. And also, if you wouldn't mind following my buddy Eris at Punch Zone Eris, me, Patrick M. Cotter, Knuckles and Gloves is also on Instagram you know, uh, Facebook, all of those stupid ass things. And you can subscribe on YouTube if you're watching or uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, you know, all of those sorts of things. Buddies, I will talk to you guys later. Thanks, guys. Take Thank it you. easy, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.